for example, if they see that a precision fermentation dairy company has raised 50 million, 200 million, you are a potential founder and you think, oh, that looks great. Now I have to build something in that space. But usually once these large rounds have been raised, then it's already too late. And sometimes people tend to forget that there's obvious visibility to it. But the other approach would be maybe if you bottom up through your own research, come up with something completely different than you. And this is also what we're discussing quite often internally. What is the next big thing in food tech and what we're looking into? This is Christian Guber, principal at Food Labs. Food Labs is one of the leading European food tech VCs and venture studios. This is a really interesting conversation on how venture capital shapes the biotech space. We discuss the need and the challenge of biotech patents, the hype and bust of plant-based, and what the hell a venture studio does. I enjoyed this a lot, and I hope you do too. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech and Food. Do you know stuff about corn, the UK company, by the way? I've read that they're using this mold from guy. But it's funny because the company is so old, but it still seems like all startups are pitching pretty much what they have been doing for 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was exactly what I was also thinking. But there are some differences to what they are doing and what the other ones are doing. Like they're using different sorts of strains and, and fungi versus mycelium, I guess. But I think that's connected to a bigger point in the startup scene. And it's a lot of hype, right? I was talking to a couple of companies that do precision fermentation or biomass fermentation. And then if you look at the actual end product, it's just a tiny amount of the product that is made yeah. with those technologies, of course, because it's also expensive, but they still call themselves a precision fermentation company or a biomass company. As a startup, you don't even have to do that yourself. Just you make it vague enough so the media picks it up in that way. And they are calling us a precision fermentation company. Yeah, I, th I guess you see that across many industries. A few years ago, it was the same with every startup that was using some sort of algorithms, tried to classify themselves as machine learning or AI. And you have the same thing in maybe in the food industry where... Some companies that maybe use very simple fermentation technologies try to disguise themselves as like, yeah, we're using biomass fermentation or something because rightly so, they have understood they need to play the game a bit and work with these terms which might help them. But I think you have to be aware of it. But in the end, it's also I, I think it's fair to use them. Yeah. And I'm wondering how much that's actually connected to how VCs do their due diligence. Because you once told me that at Food Labs, you also have your deep dive topics, and then you really go and set out to understand this part of the food industry. And what does that usually look like? Was like biomass fermentation and precision fermentation once a deep dive topic for you? Yeah. So It actually has been. I can't speak for what my colleagues have been doing in 2018 too much, but pretty much there was this impulse to further look into this. And then Rafa, who back then was, for example, still an employee at Food Labs, spent six months looking into precision fermentation and then came up with the idea of Formo, even though the technology, which is now called precision fermentation, has been around for quite some time. In the pharma space back then, there were also already one or two other companies in the US doing something similar. But it was the result of speaking with hundreds of experts and looking into journals very closely and then deciding to build something in that space. And 
now from an investment point of view, in theory, this is the best way to do it, that you have a rough understanding of a certain space where you know you want to make an investment. And then you try to look at all the companies that are out there, for example, that are working with biomass fermentation or mycelium, and you compare all of them. And then you take your notes, you speak with the expert, and then at the end, you come to an investment decision. This is the theoretical best way to do it. For us as an early stage investor, sometimes it's not that easy. I think that's a bit easier having that that approach, having that when you invest at the Series A stage, mm -hmm. where you have already a bit more transparency around the market and the startups that are out there. To some degree, it also works for us as a very early stage investor and a pre-seed and seed stage. But sometimes also we've been speaking about molecular farming also. For example, this is one area that seems still fairly new. There's yeah. a couple of companies there, but it popped up out of nowhere. We didn't know proactively that we wanted to look into that space. But once it came up, it was exciting. And then you also have to react in that way a bit. So there's it's always two schools to do this pretty much that then I would say differ by investment stage. Mm. Yeah, I find it just interesting that because investors oftentimes go by this categorical approach, okay, we're doing our due diligence in this field. As a startup, of course, it makes sense to try to get into one of these categories because as a plant-based cacao startup or a plant-based honey startup, you just don't get the same valuations and the same kind of credibility and media presence as you would if you lead with the technology. And that's the irony is that in the consumer segment, that actually doesn't matter. Nobody's going to put big and fat on their honey. This is precision fermentation honey, just like they won't put this is 3D printed meat on the front package. But I really found out in the last couple of years how different it is to market to investors and the mm -hmm. food tech media community versus marketing to consumers. So we had Formo on Red to Green twice already, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. to loop in the listeners. In the first season on cellular agriculture, we had them when they just created the ever first mozzarella, which involved no cow and that actually was made, I think, with whey that they created in this precision fermentation approach. But yeah, like when they did their rebranding, I was doing the consumer acceptance season and I was thinking, this is so science focused. Like they talk about science as the core part of their branding. And it puzzled me a little bit until I was like, oh, of course, this branding, because they're so far from the actual consumers. This branding is not for consumers at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. This is a part that that is not talked about often enough, which is a bit the psychology of fundraising and optimizing the company maybe for fundraising versus building an actual company. Even though I know that Formo, they're very much building the right company here. I know it's easy to say that as an investor, but what I think is a mistake is if startups are very much reactive in the sense that they look at what has been funded, what kind of companies, what kind of technologies, and they try to copy that. And it seems like in, in alternative proteins, there are so many, it seems like all the technology are already out there and mm. all it's going a bit to enabling technologies. Maybe this is now the next big wave of topics to look into. We've also made our investments there. But ideally, potential founders would try to not look much into funding and hype, but rather try to come up with their own way of doing things. Because in the end, the reason for why precision fermentation is maybe more hyped than plant-based is also because it's a bit more defensible. And the other thing to look into this is, so we've looked, for example, also quite closely into the space of synthetic cocoa. I know there's mixed opinions about it, but generally speaking, it's fairly harmful for the environment. 
But the thing is here now, in what kind of technology would you invest or what kind of product? And the difference with comparing that to plant-based meat alternative is that I think with cocoa, because it's such a blue ocean still, there are not many companies working on synthetic cocoa alternatives. Here, I would completely agree with you. It's just about building the right product that maybe tastes great and it doesn't matter yet whether it's precision fermentation or traditional fermentation because there's not much competition yet. But if there is lots of competition, then you need to get some feeling for what differentiates you. And the reason why many plant-based companies are struggling in our perception is because there's already lots of competition and then easy to say, yeah, but our product tastes better, but that's very hard to justify or quantify this. That's a bit the dilemma here and why I'd always urge founders to ignore a bit the media buzz, even though, of course, as investors, we're often also quite guilty then and some sort of hurt behavior and, oh yeah, we need to do X, Y, Z right now. Everybody's doing X, Y, Z. That can certainly be this. Yeah, and you said that it's about making it somehow defendable. IP has been a topic throughout the season and throughout the entire history of Red to Green is something that's that we debate critically. And one of the issues that seems to come up on the side of founders and the companies is that a lot of the ground research, and that's especially the case in cell base, but I guess also in fermentation, a lot of the ground research needs to be done for each company individually because there's not that much public research out there. And I've talked to scientists who told me, I just cannot do it because how am I supposed to work for this startup delivering some kind of scientific takeaway within a short period of time that actually is so basic and so investigative that you cannot make a project timeline for research. So what would actually help the space mm -hmm. would be way more collaboration between the startups to say, we don't all need to start from scratch again, more applicable to cell-based, but we can pool our resources because otherwise actually the entire industry won't get anywhere. But one key factor stopping companies from doing that is oftentimes the investors that of course want to keep the IP of the company exclusive as much as possible as the strategic advantage. And like you can say, well, one investor may have five companies would be great that they collaborate with each other, but the other investors that have a different kind of portfolio won't be happy about that. How do you see that? That's, that's, a, that's a difficult question. You're right. I would probably also argue that it would be the wrong approach sharing maybe IP or breakthroughs with direct competitors if it's core to the business. But for example, in the cell cultivation space, It's a bit like short-term thinking versus long-term thinking, but I think in the cell cultivation space, what might be interesting is if you have collaborations with players that maybe have a bit more of a vertical focus and where it's complementary. For example, if you have maybe a company that is focusing on growth media and it needs to test its growth media with certain cell lines, so they also need to do some cell line development. And then you have another company that is working on bioreactors mm -hmm. and maybe wants to sell some sort of turnkey solution. We actually have one company that is doing that in our portfolio. And these two companies are not conflicting. Like they're targeting maybe similar customers, but they will always be complementary. And for them, for example, it might make a lot of sense to join partnerships. And that's something that should be fostered. And I think investors can help especially if they invest across certain in the Selex space, for example, and have portfolio companies that have this potential for collaboration. But if it's if companies are maybe at early stages and their business model are complementary because it's more vertically focused, then I think 
that should be fostered and that we're actually also trying to do within our portfolio. We don't have too many companies in the select space. We have, I think, three companies, but there's exactly that combination that we try to foster. But it's a tough problem. And I also, I would add to that the other layer is that what's difficult is translating IP from university to practice, because mm. quite often you have very good, very reputable universities that then either want to see some crazy investment or like some crazy fee that they want to get for the IP or like they want to get 20% on the company. And that is the other big thing that is a big bottleneck for the industry. Mm -hmm. You were mentioning the media hype that has now quieted down. I guess we went through a Gartner's hype cycle alongside the valuations. The Gartner hype cycle methodology gives you a view of how a technology or an application will evolve over time. And it has these different stages like an innovation trigger, the peak of inflated expectations, then the throw of disillusionment, pretty much the valley of disillusionment. And it goes up again a little bit into the slope of enlightenment and to the plateau of productivity, right? So if you imagine it, it starts out at zero, then goes up steeply to this amazing expectation hype, then it goes down through disillusionment and normalizes somewhere in the middle. And this consulting firm Gartner also estimates where different technologies are on the hype spectrum. So as of 2020, NFTs, for example, are already over the peak of the expectations and going towards the valley of disillusionment. And actually, if you look at the 2019 version of the Gartner's Hype Cycle, it does mention cultured meat uh, at the very bottom, biotech, cultured or artificial tissue with more than 10 years go to market. In the 2022 edition, it's not included anymore. I guess a lot of listeners already know this, but maybe we can just do a little bit of by then historical uh, review of what happened. Because during COVID, actually the food industry was still going strong. There were a lot of companies founded. Instead of breaking down, there was actually more and more hype and the necessity and clarity, wow, our food system is unstable. We see how important it is to have different and varied supply chains. A lot of companies were going through an amazing stage of funding. So why this turn? Yeah, I think there's different things to this. As you have said, there's the very obvious general downturn of the market, which is affecting many industries, Web3 and crypto, creator economy. We've seen many industries that were a bit hyped during COVID and then were especially maybe relevant with regards to working from home. That thing, I would say, wasn't necessarily the case for food tech, Except maybe grocery delivery. Yeah, the grocery delivery for sure. Like currently we're still going through the cyclical downturn, but I think the structural tailwind hasn't stopped yet. There's obviously looking at the impossible stock price is quite depressing for mm. sure. And I think what you've seen there is that many consumers were very much open-minded to trying this new food, but maybe it's not there yet. Maybe it's not perfect yet. There can be different reasons to discuss this. I know it's also somewhat controversial within the food tech industry. But generally speaking, many plant-based products are still too heavily processed and not necessarily 
as healthy yet as they could be. And then maybe it's even healthier just eating your plain veggies instead of the processed veggies. And that's my interpretation of what's happening there. And the companies that are actually working on these better solutions, but who haven't launched yet, that remains yet to be seen. We're seeing the first launch of Meaty and Perfect Day in the US. I think it's still too early to say that companies like this have failed because they still haven't launched at scale yet. And once they have launched at scale and consumer adoption still remains low, I think then we have a problem. But that isn't the case yet. And I think it would be a bit too early to say that hype cycle has been completely down. You need to differentiate a bit by what kind of stage the different companies are in. And then the other aspect that, that you have briefly touched, and that's now the other thing where many food and ag tech investors are looking into, as you said, With the supply chain crisis, the Ukraine war, fertilizer prices going up, it's everything a bit more fundamental, talking about soil health and what's actually happening at the fields. And this is probably also a very healthy development. This is just starting and seems to be one of the next big topics where we'll see, I think, many investments going into. Yeah, for next year, I hope to be able to make a regenerative agriculture or sustainable agriculture season that would be great love uh, to listen yeah. <laughs> nice yeah because you have lots of different books in the area but they are very specialized for farmers and to have more of a general food tech perspective on this agricultural field could be nice so yeah. if any of the listeners know any foundations that would be interested in sponsoring this please reach out to me very happy to be connected with organizations that are aligned and trying to educate people in regenerative agriculture To loop back to the biotech topic, so in this season we've looked mostly at fermentation. And is there something else in the biotech realm re related to food that you find interesting apart from biomass, precision and molecular farming? Currently, molecular farming is, as you have said, is, is a very interesting topic because the problem, at least with fermentation, is that scale-up is quite costly. You need bioreactors and there is a bottleneck for these um, or you need to retrofit them. So molecular farming remains interesting because basically you go from plants, you modify them and then you can grow certain selected proteins. So I just briefly wanted to touch this because I think it's just a, such a fascinating technology. Mm. If you would like to learn more about molecular farming, check out our episode 6.6. And apart from that, we are looking very closely into the fertilizer space. This is a crazy topic. If you look at the emissions from ammonia, and in that sense, there's already quite a few interesting solutions. Pivot Bio is a big company in the US. Most fertilizers that are used in agriculture contain three basic nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Pivot Bio has identified a rare few microbes that are the best at converting atmospheric nitrogen into a form that plants can use. So these microbes are especially designed to work on cereal crops, which are some of the most nitrogen-hungry crops we grow. Due to the war in Ukraine, fertilizer costs have been skyrocketing. But there are also global issues with fertilizer runoffs and residues which far exceed our planetary boundaries. So if you want to look into some kind of biotech solutions for this area, it's definitely worth it.
But for example, there are not many new solutions yet for the controlled environmental agriculture space yet. So think hydroponics. There, for example, this is still a white space where these new biofertilizers, where you pretty much use microorganisms. Um, it hasn't been too established yet. So this is interesting. Alternative packaging is a space that is often underlooked and super fascinating. We just invested in a company that can use algae to make pretty much the perfect replacement for plastic while also enhancing the shelf life. Um, they still need to work a bit on scalability and getting to price parity. But I think that that seems super promising. And as we've just touched, soil health, regenerative agriculture is probably one of the topics that can be easily overlooked because it's just not that crisp. Maybe mm -hmm. it doesn't fit into a headline as easily as precision fermentation. But um, that seems to be for us another very exciting topic beyond some of the stuff that we're also looking into, which is maybe less biotech or impact driven when it's about some interesting new concepts for virtual kitchens or the next consumer brands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here also, we touched upon it briefly with talking about Formo. You actually have an approach of incubating your own companies. So you have your own venture studio approach. What does that mean? And how is it different from just saying you incubate startups? The background of Food Labs has been historically quite entrepreneurial. Our founding partner, Christoph, has been an entrepreneur himself and has been an angel investor for quite some time. So there's this DNA within Food Labs and also Atlantic Labs, our sister fund of really that we all like to work very early together with founders. This is where, where there's the most uncertainty, but where we also have the most fun because in the end, It's one of the first investors. There's not really much numbers that you invest in, like maybe late stage investors, but you're always investing in people and maybe exciting technologies. And it's, I think it's always been a pity if you found a fascinating entrepreneur, but you cannot invest because it's too early. And so this was one of the reasons why in 2016, when Footclips was founded, We started out as a venture studio and today we have these two approaches, venture studio and investment team. And the venture studio, it works pretty much like that. You have a team of generalists from Food Labs who look into certain topics. This is one way, but the other way is that we are always in touch with potential entrepreneurs and residents, as we call them. This might be um, senior employees at food tech companies or delivery companies. We have this close connection to many people in the ecosystem, exchange ideas on potential interesting incubation topics. So we can work with the venture studio when there's maybe just a co-founding team or single entrepreneur residents or just an idea. And then we maybe help finding the right team for a certain idea. And then once this is there, it's like a program that can go from three months up to two years. Our team of generalists in the studio team helps these founders with everything that they need. And then in addition to that, we also have a team of operational experts. So for example, we have a fairly large, sophisticated talent and venture development team taking care of everything around hiring and recruiting. And this is really one of the most important levers, especially at the beginning, mm -hmm. building the company, finding the right hires. Sounds like a cliche. Finding the right hires remains super difficult. We have two operating partners just taking care of growth marketing and communications and PR for our portfolio companies. We have a fairly sophisticated finance and accounting team. So we have the entrepreneurs, hopefully, with everything that they need around hiring, finding warehouse space, laboratory space, building the first financial model, but maybe also the first pitch deck. Uh, and then once the company has bit of funding from us. Once they are ready that they've raised their first external round beyond food labs, 
This is usually then when they leave the studio and then maybe find their own office. But having the venture studio in our offices also helps us from the investment angle because you see the entrepreneurial struggle. I really like that being rooted in startup reality, whereas sitting in the VC ivory tower, where sometimes <laughs> if you're only looking at pitch decks the whole day, I think you can become cynical at some point because you have to reject so many startups. And then in that sense, it also keeps us a bit grounded. I was talking to a company that got funded by Food Labs and she said that actually Food Labs and specifically you, Christian, you're the only investor she, she talks to. <laughs> It's like, the other ones don't care about us at all. With Christian, I once in a while have a good chat and he spars me. I found that was a good sign. But she also told me about the difficulty of how things changed in terms of timelines within the last couple of months that a couple of months ago, it was like, oh yeah, you're gonna go to market in five years. That sounds reasonable. And now because of the slowdown of money in the market, there's pressure to go out. And at the same time, going to market in an environment that's very uncertain where people don't have that much spare cash as they used to. Part of what drives people to try novel foods is also a sense of adventure. But if Life is so shaky and like, things are going so wild. There's no need to have extra adventure by buying novel foods. That's also an aspect that doesn't make it easier. So does it make sense? Like for, as a VC, are you pushing your startups to go to market faster? And what do you think is the right way? For, for being completely honest here, just among the two of us, <laughs> you, can, you can optimize a bit for fundraising or you optimize for building, building a company. And sometimes you have to tweak it a bit. That being said, with everything that's going on at the moment, it is the right impulse to optimize for a fast go-to-market than just staying in the lab, building the perfect product and not getting customer feedback. I mean, you have to say like at the moment we're in Q4, 2022, there's so much uncertainty that it's probably hard to say about this moment in time where things need to move. Maybe the Ukraine war will resolve itself. Maybe it won't. Maybe we're not just facing a recession, but even depression. And the times of cheap capital are certainly over. I think that seems to be a more substantial thing. And you have to look at these macroeconomic factors with rising interest rates. Capital will be flowing out, even though there's lots of dry powder currently available, which is good. There's lots of dry powder available, especially to tackle climate-related issues. Food tech is climate-related. Maybe to intersect, uh, what's dry powder? Uh, with dry powder, I mean funds that have been raised and yep. that are not deployed yet. So that is potentially colleagues from other venture capital funds um, who maybe have just raised a 100 million euro fund, 500 million euro funds. And I think the number that I first is around 200 billion in dry powder are still available at the moment. Mm -hmm. And it might just be that some of this will be returned to LPs, but probably not all of it. And lots of this dry powder will go to climate-related topics. Nevertheless, <laughs> this is where I'm getting to. The times of long R&D are over and you need to show a bit traction. We were talking about this consumer adoption issue. We need to get closer to the actual arguments. It's just not about storytelling anymore, but you need to show a bit that there's actual traction to it, that there's some truth to it, and that this is not just driven from the climate perspective. Yeah, this is better for the climate. Everybody understands this, at least in the ecosystem, but also that there's actual hunger from consumers there. And this is why I think it's right at the moment prioritizing a faster go-to-market. Mm -hmm. So usually the last questions of the podcast, especially the first one here, is unusual for most people to think about. For you, it's not even that unusual. If you would have 50 million 
to invest in any kinds of solutions, where would you put that money? Yeah, so that's, uh, I'm thinking about this every day, right? With <laughs> the 15 million, if there's only drop into my pockets. I think we're currently at the stage where it's become clear that a bit of the fun times are a bit over and we need to address some of the more severe problems uh, across different industries. And what I'm personally, at least at the moment, puzzled by the solar energy situation that, that we are seeing ourselves in and in my view maybe another controversial opinion i'm stunned by germany's stance to moving out of nuclear energy and maybe nuclear energy is not the perfect solution but so, so to answer your question what seems to be very promising and th that comes from a guy with a business background i'm not, not a scientist myself but what seems to be very promising is fusion energy seems to be very far away but if it were to work it would be the game changer of the world. And I think this is an area, if I had a bit more time, that I would love to look into. And the other problem, I think is this, this time bomb, this question of demographic change. And I think like it will be scary in 30, 40, 50 years, having a society in Germany where the demographic pyramid is just completely upside down. I would also like to invest in, in technologies there, retirement homes. I don't know what it is, probably not robotics, but that seems to be another issue that we might want to look further into. Yeah. So two serious answers. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love also the topic about of looking into retirement solutions, because usually the people who are the best fit to work on it in terms of hustle culture are not yet there with their minds. They're so far away from the prospect of retirement homes and elderly care. And it actually, it's also not yet sexy. I don't know if there's like some kind of cool tech term, adult tech or <laughs> grand <So> tech. <laughs> well, tech sounds too shady. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so it needs a little bit of a brush up the whole field. And if you, yeah, maybe, but maybe there's also no tech solution there. That's the question. Yeah, in our tech bubble, that we think tech will solve the world, will solve all issues, which are oftentimes just cultural and societal. You did mention a couple, but like, what is maybe another controversial viewpoint that you have? Something that a lot of people in the food tech scene would disagree with. I feel like I have already exposed myself to much uh, in favor of, of nuclear energy and maybe disputing that meat is not completely unhealthy. I, I would leave it at that. I think that's enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Red to Green is in Spotify's top 5% most shared and most followed. Thank you so much for being such a lovely tribe of dedicated nerds. <laughs> And if you're looking to post something on LinkedIn, I can recommend posting about your favorite episode of the season, or maybe your three favorite podcasts to listen to that you would recommend other food tech nerds. Shout out to the entire Red to Green team. You can find their profiles on redtogreen.solutions. Redtogreen.solutions. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.